The losing streak is over. Norwich City have their first Premier League point on the board and we are here to savour the excitement of a nil-nil draw on a cold, wet afternoon at Burnley. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. I'm your host, Dave Freezer. We come to you in association with Future Radio 107.8 FM. And joining us as ever are Paddy Davitt and Connor Southwell. Boys, how are we doing? Paddy, you come to us in a, an exciting new location, which you reliably inform us is, is named Utopia. Yeah, yeah, it's not some nirvana that I've, I've decided to gravitate to leave behind gobbler straws in the damp and the drizzle at Burnley. No, it, it's the self-titled room here at Archant Towers. Uh, and I suppose I've got to tell the story why I'm sat here, because normally I'd be sat in my house. Uh, but um, basically, uh, to cut a long story short, we, we, uh, we had a very officious steward at Burnley yesterday after the game, and that combined with Daniel taking reasonably long by his standards to, to get through with all his rights holders and post-match media commitments to finally reach us to do his media. Um, the combination of those two factors, I've left my power cable behind for my laptop plugged in uh, where we sat in the Burnley rather tight press box. So uh, a collection of events, which essentially meant this morning when we're trying to do various amounts of work, including this, this podcast, I've, uh, Got no power, so uh, I had to hot foot it to Prospect House. Name check Ian Barnard, top man in our uh, information yeah. systems department. He sorted me out with a power cable. And, and as I was here, I thought, well, because we rarely, you know, without going into the pandemic and home working and agile working, as we call it, but very rarely are we based, if ever, here now. So I thought, well, let's have a busman's holiday and let's work from the Utopia room. Utopia, because we've got these uh, offshoot meeting rooms all named after fonts, I believe, Dave. Am I right? Yeah, I Various, I'm more of an Ariel bold man myself, but I couldn't find <laughs> that room, so we've had to settle for Utopia. Maybe yeah. there's maybe there's a metaphor there, Utopian result for Norwich. Are we now heading to a Utopia of Norwich can actually pick up points home and away with, dare we say it, defensive resolution? That does sound like Utopia to me. Connor, did it feel like utopia to you in the the cold up at high at the back of that stand? <laughs> no, I think if if we're going down the font line, it probably felt a bit more Comic Sans than Utopia, to be honest. But um, <laughs> you know, that's that's Burnley, isn't it? You wouldn't want anything different. And and for all the talk of you know these these places, Burnley, uh, Stoke did when they were in the Premier League, they used to get sort of used as a marker to how your team was physically, how it kind of stood up to the Premier League test. And Norwich have come away with a point, so. Um, as as Pad says, it's 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 hopefully and, and and we probably won't know realistically until what happens against Brighton how how valuable this point is or could be. Um, but given everything that we've had to sit and talk through in the last seven weeks of the season, um, I think we're we're probably quite glad to be sitting here talking about a nil nil where there was very little action and Norwich walked away with an actual physical Premier League point, which is something that hasn't happened for over five hundred days. So um, yeah, it, it does feel like a bizarre kind of. Um, well, hopefully watershed moment, but we probably won't know until the other side of the break. But I think everyone's just been wanting for something to cling on to, something to see, something that they can build upon. And, and hopefully, again, yesterday will will, will be that um, will be that performance and that result that can hopefully kickstart them now. And um, all talk about 16 straight defeats and all the various negative numbers are, are, are broken and, and we can all look forward to something a little bit more positive. 
to continue the tortured font analogy, Burnley are a bit old school times New Roman, aren't they? In their approach, they, uh, are, you know, exactly the sort of game you're going to get. And I don't think any of us were expecting them to end up with 56% of possession, as whoscored.com tells me. And that perhaps emphasises what Norwich did well, particularly in the second half, in terms of just letting Burnley have the ball, sitting deep, keeping the structure and trying to hit them on the counter-attack. And Burnley generally, as we saw, don't have that quality on the ball. Quite a few poor passes and things that got the, the home fans quite wound up and will come to all the uh, the decisions and things. But yeah, I mean, Kenny McLean has summed it up quite well and Daniel Farker after the game, haven't they, Pad, that this is nothing to get too excited about. When they weren't celebrating, that wasn't the attitude of the players after the game. They went over and thanked the away fans, but there was no big fist pumps and certainly no Farker celebratory waves or anything like that. If anything, I, I felt more their mood at the end was that they felt like they could have gone and nicked that if they'd have just found that bit of quality. Yeah, I mean, those stats would suggest, and I don't think, I think Burnley edged the shots, total shots on as well, but... If you drill down, yeah, Nick Pope did have a little bit of work to do. Again, mainly sourced from Matthias Norman and, and his ability to shoot from range. But um, and it was, you know, on Ozan Kabak header, which he put over at the back post. I think it was Yunulis's angle ball. I think that might have been flagged. I think they just let that yeah. play on. But but I think that probably he was slightly offside. But but irrespective, there there was potential, no doubt about it, um, to have really made it a, a day to remember and, and got the three points and. And rather than just a watershed moment, that might feel like a, a page had been turned completely, really, if they'd have gone there, got a clean sheet and won the game. But, um, you know, we've got to start somewhere. So ultimately, since Watford, everything that Daniel has said, clearly everything he's trying to do at Colney, clearly his team selections and formation is with a view to making them far more solid, far more robust and resilient. And all those attributes were on show yesterday because I, I don't care whether Burnley haven't won in 13 at Turf Moor or... They're still striving for their first Premier League winner season. Any time you go to Burnley with what they bring to the table and go come back with a with a clean sheet, that's a good result. That's a good performance. So, and particularly in the context of going there with no wins from six, no points from six, and so many questions um, and criticisms being levelled at Daniel and the players. So there had to be a, a line in the sand somewhere. That hopefully is it. Um, but as Connor Riley says, you know. We pause now for two weeks for the internationals to take over and then Brighton um, come to Car Road. By no means will that be an easy task, um, but they need to build on this now and, and they need to put more tangible evidence on the table to convince any of those remaining doubters that this can be different. But a good start. And I think that was, as you say, they've reflected in, you know, almost quiet satisfaction within the camp that, yeah, OK, we might have answered a few of the people questioning whether we're soft touches as he... Daniel had to answer on Friday um, if they're too naive, too inexperienced. But one performance and one 90 minutes doesn't doesn't definitively answer those questions. So, um, yeah, and, and they they I think they did strike the right tone that it was, as Daniel likes to say, not time for dancing on the tables, but, um, but maybe they could start tapping their feet. Yeah, no coffee and cake just yet. Uh, Connor, let's take it chronologically. Just one change to the starting 11. Unilis comes in at left wing back for Brandon Williams, stick with the 3-5-2 shape, which I think most people were advocating that they just needed to allow that back line to settle down. And I think we definitely saw that benefit Hanley and Gibson. They were both pumped for this game. There's no doubt about that. Is there Hanley's former Blackburn? Gibson got booed by the Burnley fans, which is a bit harsh given how his time went with them. But they both seemed really on it. And given that they both had their summer injuries and 
not much of a pre-season. I think we they looked more like their old selves. They looked more like the players of last season yesterday. So that's a good good step forward. But Yanulis in particular, I, I followed him for our player watch. So there's a bit more sort of in-depth uh, read on this at pinkman.com if you want to dig that out. But what, what did you make of, of Yanulis, Connor? Do you think he uh, did enough to put down a marker to, to keep hold of that starting role? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it was it was evident sort of what, what he offers Norwich from an attacking perspective, which we probably all knew anyway. I don't think we learned any, anything new about Dimitris Yanulis. I think it's it's probably more a system point and that this system probably caters for him a little bit better in the sense that you don't necessarily, or he doesn't need to necessarily worry kind of about over his shoulder and, and, and defending constantly because you've got that additional centre back there who can just kind of scoot across. So um, I think if, you're, if Norwich are going to head in this direction, they are going to play a free at the back and the evidence yesterday, as you mentioned, quite rightly, the back three looked much more solid. The midfield three looked pretty solid. Um, but it's going to be a big onus on the wing backs to produce um, from an attacking perspective and to get Norwich up the pitch as well. And they're kind of elements of the game that he does very well. So if Norwich are going to go to this system, then I, I think on the evidence of Brandon Williams against Everton um, and uh, Demetrius Yanoulis uh, against Burnley, you'd probably edge towards Yanoulis' performance out of the two. Um, certainly as, as, as balanced, there were times last week where Williams got the ball in kind of the attacking third in, in a crossing position and, and looked a little bit lost, to be honest. Whereas um, there was a nice moment relatively late on when Yanoulis um, broke away on the left and managed to beat a man and cut back in. Couldn't quite find an orange shirt in the box, but that was a glimpse of perhaps what he can offer you on the left-hand side. And I think for, for all the conversations we've had about him, it's never been about his attacking quality or his quality on the ball or um, how he gets Norwich up the pitch. It's been from a defensive perspective. And as a left-back in a back four, there's obviously you have to take greater responsibility and ownership of your defensive work. In a, in a back three, that doesn't necessarily matter as much and you can kind of negate that a little bit. It was um, evident how much support he was getting from Kenny McLean on that side as well. So, um yeah, I think he's. I think he's done enough. I think he's done enough to keep that shirt um, the other side of the international break. Um, and I have to say, I, I think if Norwich are going to stick with this system, then a, a wing back combination of of Max Aarons and Dimitris Yanoulis, I think, probably gives them the best balance going forward and at the back as well to uh, to make this system flourish. Because uh, a massive part of this formation is going to be on those two players and how well they can fulfil their their individual roles and. If he can now maintain that level of performance, which is probably the best we've seen of him this season, um, then I think there's there's a lot of reason for him to be optimistic and um, reason for Norwich to be optimistic that they can get what they need to get out of this system. Um, it's just, for me, about ensuring that those guys can support enough when they attack. Um, but they felt like they had a bit more freedom, as we saw in the second half against Everton, to really push up and uh, and, and make things happen. So, um yeah, I, I think he's. I think he's done enough to keep his shirt for Brighton. Obviously, injury permitting, um, and I think he will have left Turf more um, feeling pretty pretty good about his performance. To be honest, yeah, there was a moment when I was recording the video verdict after the game when um, just as just before I started recording, the uh, players who hadn't played were warming down on the pitch with one of the coaches, and you've got Billy Gilmore, Brandon Williams in the pouring rain and cold at, at Burnley, warming down, going through the shuttle runs. And I just can't imagine that's what they were expecting when they joined on loan from Chelsea and Manchester United. So those boys are both going to have to dig in because, you know, Williams didn't get in England under 21 squad either. We had Ashley Cole at Carroll Road for the Watford game. So I, I'm pretty certain that Williams will have been one of the players that he's watching, but he's only on standby again. Max, of course, is still in the in the under-21 squad. So it's not quite happening for him yet. And I, I felt like Daniel's given him a, a good crack of the whip. So now... You knew this probably deserves that same 
spell in the team to to kick on because I think this is much like the team a starting point for you Nulis that defensively it's not like he was totally convincing there were bad moments there were certainly encouraging moments going forward as well um, but he will need to improve they all all need to improve and the confidence levels need to start raising as a team Max likewise I thought he was pretty close to a very good performance yesterday similar to the Leicester game but I didn't think he did too much with it in the final third really I think his final ball was missing to take all that on to the next stage pad really there was in the live blog particularly at pinkin.com there were concerns about what all this means in terms of the attacking players Jollis and Rashitza in particular they spent big money on they've brought in where does this really leave them Do, do you see it as the 352 is for the moment, a bit of a temporary fix just to to get a foothold and that those those lads will still have a big part to play, perhaps in a different shape, or are they going to have to force their way into this shape in the uh, sort of short term? Um, that's an interesting one. I mean, I have seen the narrative that, I saw it again yesterday, you know, you've spent, uh, we'll just pick the ballpark, figure out, you've spent 16 million on two wingers and they're not getting a game or they're not getting much of a game. Um, could that money have been redirected better elsewhere? But this is, for me, any anything of that nature in terms of extrapolating what's going on with those two, I, I think is is a little bit um, rewriting history. They've been brought in to offer some more punch in the final third, but to repeat what we've already said, fundamentally, what is the point in putting Rashidza, Jolis, whoever, Adam the Sergeant Pookie in at the top end of the pitch if they were going to be as porous? and it's easy to do, to score against at the other end because ultimately it's not a basketball game. You're playing in the Premier League against the best teams and some of the best players in the world. If, and we saw it two seasons ago. They started off very well and that expansive, progressive, um, almost freedom to their play uh, got them results, notably Manchester City. But thereafter, the wheels came off and uh, it was, it was uh, an horrendous slog back to the Football League. Uh, and obviously there was other elements in that in terms of the pandemic and so on. But... But ultimately, they, they were far too naive and far too open. Um, so, and Daniel said it, after Watford, if you're losing 3-1 at home to Watford, who basically punished that lack of defensive structure, lack of defensive organisation, capitalised on individual errors, then what chance have you got of staying in this league? So it's almost stripping it back, putting foundations in place, and then you can put the roof and, and the other floors on the house, if you want to use that type of analogy. And part of that will be, no doubt about it, bringing... Jolis and Rashik uh, to the party. Um, they've brought those players in. They've spent that money because they rate them and they think they can add something to Norwich in terms of the attacking element. But ultimately, the priority at the minute is defensively. So I'm, I'm, I think it's absolutely incredibly premature to be talking about why we spent money on these guys. What was the point? Why can't they get a game, get them in the side? Because ultimately, you know, there's only so many elements that Daniel and his coaches can can work on or prioritise at this stage and and very clearly, and I don't think most Norwich fans would disagree, they had to be better defensively. Because if you if you need to go into a game and scoring two and three at Premier League level, forget it. They haven't got the quality, the depth of quality to do that every week. So they're going down again. So they need to come up with a different approach. And if that approach for now is a different shape and, and more of a defensive emphasis but it gives them, as it did at Burnley, a platform to then add those elements over the coming games and weeks, then surely that would seem to be a better bet at trying to achieve what they're trying to achieve. And it'll be tough whatever way they go, whatever route, whatever players they put in, because we all know how big the divide is now. You know, Neil Adams himself, when he was on 
sort of confirmed in post as assistant last week. He talked about in his previous role as loans manager that the steps between National League, League Two, not much, League Two, League One, da-da-da-da. But he said championship to Premier League is a chasm, basically, now. And we've seen that in the early weeks. So I think it's a case of, you know, let's let's bed in a defensive system. And then I have absolutely no doubt in my mind because Daniel has spoken liberally about why he wanted Rashica, why he wanted Zolis, what he thinks they can bring. They will get more than enough game time over the piece. And like Yanoulis yesterday, like a Kabak or a Norman, when they get an opportunity, they need to take it. By no measure of means are we going to see Josh Sargent and Timu Puki every single game between now and the end of the Premier League season. It's just not going to happen. So they will get their opportunities, but it's finding the right time. And don't forget, at Everton, when the game was in the balance, he turned to both of those players and, and he gave them the final quarter. It was just unfortunate that then Kenny McLean did what he did and Everton scored and that was the game over. But but he, he had plenty of faith in them to potentially go on and, as it stood at that point, get them back in the game and who knows, maybe gone on and won the game. So, yeah, it, it it's, it's far too premature to be saying what on earth have they brought in two wingers and not playing them. I think it's part of a wider, more complex equation and ultimately until they're defensively resolute on a week-to-week basis, then that is where the focus lies. And, and I think, personally, he's right to go that route because the alternative, as I say, they're not the Harden Globetrotters. They're not going to, uh, to use my top there, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to, they're not going to turn up against Brighton and say, well, you score three, we'll let you score three, we'll score four. Not going to happen, is it? You know, we're living in the real world. It's not football manager we're playing here. So, if you're Daniel Farker. So, um I think he's 100% right to go with a more circumspect approach in terms of the top end of the pitch at the minute. Of course, that needs to change because defensive resolution alone will not keep this team in the division. They also need to carry an attacking threat um, far more than they have done in the last two or three games. But this is a process and, and this is about putting building blocks in place to get to a point where, as you said on Friday, the efficiency in both penalty areas needs to be far better. Now, that's the head coach saying that. So he he doesn't need to be told that. He knows that. They need to be better in their own box and the attacking box as well. But right here, right now, they've clearly pivoted towards getting the defensive side of it correct. Yeah, there was a question during the live blog, and I've, I've seen a few tweets similarly, that, that things are going well for Mario Vrancic at Stoke, sort of suggesting, well, why did we let him go? Couldn't we have kept him? He would have done a job. What you just said there is exactly right. We have just seen the championship champions of 97 points step up and find the Premier League incredibly difficult. It's not just the ability. It's not just the quality, although finishing is particularly of a totally different gravy compared to the championship. It's the athleticism. It's the power. It's the speed. Everything's happening on fast forward compared to the championship. Mario Vrancic is a very good player at that level, and he could still have done a job for, for Norwich, but... I think anybody looking at the fact that he's doing that well for Stoke now and thinking that would be making a dramatic difference on what Norwich is doing at the moment would be a little bit um, uh, being a little bit too favourable to Mario, probably. Let's get to the big talking point. Uh, Danny Murphy on Match of the Day said he was absolutely gobsmacked that Burnley didn't have a penalty. 16th minute, really eventful, lively start to the game, wasn't it? Max Aarons fired one just wide. Tarkowski was booked for dragging Pookie down as Max played him through on goal. He'd also elbowed Kenny McLean pretty early in the game, so he could have even had two early and maybe should have had two yellow cards in the opening 15 minutes. Then you knew this gives away a cheap free kick on the left, which is exactly the sort of thing that Daniel Farker had preempted on Friday and said, we've got to minimise that sort of thing. I've got it in front of me here. Burnley had nine corners. 
you know, Norwich survived them, but that is not the level that they were hoping for. Um, that free kick comes in, Tim Krull clatters Matej Vidru, who ends up in a heap on the floor. There's sort of chaos all around. There's pushing and shoving. Um, there's it's real nervous and, and the three of us look at each other once we've seen that first replay and you can we're all thinking VAR's going to have something to say here aren't we yeah I thought, I thought it was a penalty to to be to be completely honest um cruel gets you know like he, he gets a, a bit of the ball with his fists but the the contact there Vidra gets to the ball first for me it's a it's a foul it should be a penalty um again you can, we can argue various VAR episodes from from the past but um when you look at that one in in isolation, it was it was it was a penalty. I, I think you always have to judge these things on. Well, if that was at the other end, would you want it given in Norwich's favour? And I think you'd you'd probably feel a bit miffed if it wasn't. So certainly Daniel Farker would. So um, that for me was was probably the only one. There were a few others. I think Sean Dyche and the Burnley fans were getting pretty wound up about, but. I think they they got the majority. Kevin Friend, to be fair, who um, was was pretty much the pantomime villain of of the piece for the whole afternoon, alongside Ben Gibson and Grant Hanley. Uh, I, I felt he got the vast majority of the decisions spot on. To be honest, um, there was one in the first half, wasn't there, where Vidra kind of um, ran across Grant Hanley and threw himself to the floor. I didn't think that was a penalty. Um, so if you're Sean Dyche, I think you've probably only got that one to to really bemoan um, because it was it was a penalty and, and and I'm shocked it didn't get overturned and, and we have this conversation all the time, don't we, about this threshold that VAR has about clear and obvious. They obviously didn't deem that to be clear and obvious enough um, to to turn it over. Whether it was the fact that Tim Krul's a goalkeeper and we we know sometimes goalkeepers get sort of kind of decisions um, in their favour, rightly or wrongly, they get a bit more protection. Um, Vidra obviously felt the effect of of that. He had to go off um, later in the, in the first half. So, yeah. But equally, it's it's kind of the luck that many people feel Norwich haven't had with with VAR um, probably since it was introduced um, two seasons ago. And, and and that game against Liverpool, there were numerous um, episodes across that season. Um, we we've seen a few this season as well. And most notably, the Leicester goal, which ultimately was was the correct decision. But again, you can be argue, you can argue about. The specifics of it um the law was 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 correctly applied in in that case it wasn't here um and i, I always think back to what daniel farker said after signing his new contract in pre-season that um combined with all the things that we've spoken about defensive solidity needing to pack a punch on the counter norwich would need luck and this was um probably a rare occasion where they got a bit of luck on on their side and we they haven't had any of that so far. Probably, probably again, probably in the last two years, really in the Premier League, but certainly in the in the opening seven games with the fixture list and various other excuses we, we could throw out as mitigation. We all know they're ultimately in the position they are because they've not been good enough, but they haven't been lucky either. And what's um, what's the saying? Sometimes it's better to be lucky than be good. So um, I think it's probably long overdue that Norwich are, are owed one. Um, but yeah, if I was in Sean Dyche's position, I think I'd, I'd, I'd probably, I'd probably feel as as aggrieved as him. But by the same token, and you reference the crosses and and the corners there, didn't really test him cruel, notably uh, throughout the afternoon. And that's a credit to Norwich. And when we sat here, I think reflecting about the whole performance, ultimately, yeah, I think we all know it was far from perfect from a Norwich perspective, and it wasn't ultimately three points. It wasn't a win that that would make the tone of this all different. And we could be talking about fresh starts and new pages, new chapters, etc. 
But given the context and given the narrative around them, they needed to break it. And as Paddy quite rightly said, you come away from from Turf Moor with a clean sheet and and a result, then you've done you've done a good job ultimately. And um, if they can if they can replicate this away performance in a, in a few places in the Premier League and get the home form right, um, and, and you have to say we, we've spoken about kind of the next five games starting with with the with the Watford game. Um, it's all it's all it, it feels a lot more favourable in Premier League terms, but now they've got to capitalise on it and they've got to cash in this luck that we're speaking about, um, not not obviously on this occasion, and uh, and they need to make it count. And if they do that uh, and the luck falls in their favour continuously and, and they can continue that defensive resolution and they can find a solution to their kind of uh, attacking issues, then we might begin to, to speak about a side that looks a bit more Premier League worthy. And just to go back to the point that, that Paddy was talking about and their attacking freedom... Um, I listened to Sean Dyche's press conference on Thursday ahead of this game and he was asked a question along a similar vein really about why Burnley have created more chances but look a little bit more open at the back and he was talking, I think Steve Bruce has spoken about it as well to be fair, um, that when you try and open up one end, often you find that that's to the detriment of, of the other end and you try and do vice versa and it's the same and actually the balancing act between the two is incredibly tough so that's the challenge that Norwich face, um, but yeah, more more luck like uh, like they they had yesterday will be required as well if if they're to stay in the Premier League. Yeah, and that balance I think is why a player like Kenny McLean remains a favourite of Daniel, isn't it? He's someone who can help you to strike that balance in terms of he can do it going forward, but he can also do it going backwards. Uh, I'm I'm in agreement. I think they've got away with one. It should have been a penalty. If that happens to a Norwich player, all the Norwich fans would be as furious as the Burnley fans are that they haven't uh, been given it. But ultimately, it just shows that with VAR, it is down to interpretation. It's still down. It was Craig Pawson who was the VAR at Stockley Park. And I, my, the only way I can really explain it, because we won't get an explanation, will we, is that if you watch the replay carefully, as they will have done, if they slowed it down, Crawler's only got eyes for the ball. He is totally and utterly focused on trying to claim the ball. He's not going for Vidra. And if that's too, if it's Grant Hanley challenging for a header with Vidra and they collide heads, that pretty much never gets given as a free kick or a foul, does it? It's sort of accepted as a as a consequence of the game, a collision. So that's the only real way I can um, make sense of it in my head. But yeah, it, it feels like they've got away with one. You, you highlighted that Vidra, yeah, basically trips himself and go, tries to win a penalty. He also went down in a heap with Grant Hanley nearby, not really putting much pressure on him. Krull was not happy with that at all as he got in his ear. And later on, uh, Ashley Barnes, was it? He went down, tried to win one with Max Aarons, who clearly won the ball. And Max was so furious and tried, and got in his face that it ends up with Max getting booked, despite the fact that it was the Burnley player who was diving. They had five booked. There was a few rough tackles in there. It wasn't a pattern. That's just what it's like when you go to Turf Moor. It's not just Dyche and his coaches and the players. The fans buy into that as well. They all are on the same page. And I don't have an issue with it. They should... That should be... I. I Love it if Carroll Road was a bit more like that, really, if it had a little bit more of an aggressive edge and and put pressure on opposition teams a bit more and created that noise because we were all getting uneasy, weren't we? Expecting that that pressure of coming from the stands for every single decision, whether it was 50-50, whether it was nonsense, they were calling for everything, weren't we? And we were starting to get worried that, that the referee was going to sort of bow to that pressure and give a soft penalty or a, or a, a, you know, a soft decision. But thankfully he didn't and he stuck to his guns. Yeah. I mean, it's a siege mentality they've got there. And and every time I've gone, you feel it, you feel it. And the only other place 
comparable for me recently is Bramall Lane, Sheffield United. That battle mm. of Bramall Lane, the old uh, Wilder coach, driver, ran. Angus Gunn was in goal that day. I think there was objects thrown on the pitch, but from that massive spy on cop, um, really intimidating places to go. Um, even though there's not, it's not like 40,000 in there. They do make a racket, and and I think it is them. And Deitch probably is is the main driver in creating that kind of that we're almost interlopers as long as they've been in the Premier League now consecutively. That they are stylistically kind of um, you know outside of their own base. Um, they don't really. They're not going to have too many. You're not. You're not going to be a, a based in the West Country and support Burnley if you've got no connection to Burnley. They're they're not a team who endear themselves to to your neutrals. And Deitch would say, well, good because we're ultimately about trying to stay in this division and we'll do it by hook or by crook um, and pushing the margins of gamesmanship, if you want to use that phrase, to their very limit. You know, Daniel, when asked about the Deitch thoughts on the two penalty claims. And his post-match was a kind of along the lines of, well, that is kind of what Burnley and the Deitch and, and those fans try and do, try and put pressure on officials. Um, and almost a cumulative, you know, they'll be in their ear constantly over maybe throw-ins and, and minor free kicks, but it's all with a view to when the, the big key incidents come along, maybe the, the officials feel just subconsciously a little bit um, that they, they maybe owe, you know, a Burnley a decision along the way. And, and that was very much, I think, the case, the Car Road game, the final home game in the Project Restart game season when it was 2-0 to Burnley. No, I don't know what score was to Burnley that day, but it, it was yeah, two, two red cards. It was 2-0, was it? Yeah, two red cards. Um, Buendia and and, and Josip Dermic. Now, both of those, you could argue, were red cards, but constantly, up until those decisions were made, you know, Deitch was in the year of the fourth official. Yeah. I remember it clearly. Um, and, and because, obviously, there was no fans in the stadium at that point, also very very vocal in his criticism of the referee as well. So that's their DNA that, that they clearly look at it and feel, well, a bit like Norwich, you know, there's, there's, there's areas we can't hope to compete with wealthier, more established, more global brands in the Premier League, maybe the financial element being, being the main one, but they need to try and level the playing field and, and by hook or by crook, if, if they can have that gnarled kind of, um, almost the Millwall, nobody likes us, we don't care mentality, um, then, you know, there will there will be there will be games at Turf Moor this season where they probably will get a decision or two. Um, but I wouldn't disagree. I mean, with what you boys both said, you know, that, that's definitely a penalty, the cruel one. Um, and you, they have a justifiable right to uh, to be aggrieved that they didn't get that. But, uh, but I mean, I saw another report in the Burnley media that they had five, five or six penalty shouts. I don't, don't quite know no where that comes from. But does that not actually flow into what I've just said, that even their media are, are, are of the opinion that we were wronged and, you know, final whistle friend and, and his officials have to kind of walk towards Burnley's core support, certainly their most vocal element, to get back to the change rooms. And they were given dogs abuse, both at half-time and full-time. And, and and it is very much, you know, you're in the bear pit when you go to Turf Moor as an opposition team, set of fans, or even the officials maybe. And, uh, yeah. Horrible place to go, but horrible in if you're a Burnley fan or Sean Dyche, are horrible in a, in a good way because they don't want teams turning up and thinking we're going to get an easy ride here. And I think that flows into your point about Car Road, Dave. And I, I wouldn't disagree. Many's many's the opposition player, manager, maybe even supporter. If you spoke to them, said what a lovely place to go. You know what a what a great sort of relaxed kind of um, almost 
not genteel wouldn't be the right phrase, but almost, you know, you're not going to go there and be under the pomp by a home crowd who are going to, you know, get on the backs of the opposition. They can do that. They have done that on occasion. But I don't think generally, as a rule, Norwich's fan base, and that might be a discussion about maybe the demographic of Nor- a lot of Norwich's fan base and and that there isn't that kind of edge to the atmosphere at Car Road in the way you get it at a Burnley, at a Sheffield United, where it's almost you're coming to our house, you're leaving empty-handed and we're going to make sure and we'll do whatever we can within the legal limits of what is permissible to to, to make sure that is the case. And um, yeah, I, I'd like to see a little bit more of that at Car Road, but maybe that just isn't collectively. Yeah, there are pockets of Norwich's fan base, I'm sure would would be able to generate that type of intimidatory atmosphere. But generally, that's that's not really Norfolk as a, as a territory, is it? We're just too nice. Possibly, possibly, yeah. Well, from the negative to the positive then, um, and we should probably say that Tim, Tim Crawl, it was a good day for him to get a bit of luck because it was his 200th Premier League appearance, wasn't it? Which is a, a heck of a milestone to reach. You know, the majority of those with Newcastle, of course. But um, yeah, you've got to take the luck when it comes. Welcome to the new normal. Hello, and welcome to this series of Unfinished with me, Charles Thompson. Welcome to Weird Norfolk. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. From true crime to football, politics to folklore, for more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com forward slash channel forward slash Archant. And the positive, I guess, again, is is Matthias Norman, isn't it, Connor? Every game, he's going from strength to strength. He seems to be settling very, very nicely. He's got 90 minutes under his belt. He has the free kick chance, which forces a decent save from, from Pope. He hits the bar as well. And it feels to me like he is almost enjoying a bit like... It feels like he's the main man at the moment. Like, there's a lot of focus on him. Not not quite big fish in a small pond, because he's not... You know, it's not Cristiano Ronaldo that's turned up, is it? But, you know, he's got the silver hair and he's got the physique. He obviously likes a bit of attention, doesn't he? And he seems to be prospering in it. Yeah, I think the the kind of best praise you can give him is is he's he's played three games for Norwich and he's been their best player in all three. And I think that, that probably says it all, doesn't he? And um, I, I think with him, and I'll broaden it out to Kabak as well, was, uh, what we're seeing slowly, and it, it is quite slowly, frustratingly slow, I'm, I'm sure for, for a lot of supporters is, um, and I think, probably the, the most noticeable step forward was yesterday. But as these two raised their levels, yesterday was certainly an example of those around them raising their levels as well. I think we, we saw more from Kenny McLean yesterday, for example, and bar the mistake at Everton, I, I think we, we collectively agree that it was it was a better performance than it was at Watford. Um, and, and that's what Norwich need to need to strive towards. And if they can get more of these players in the side, and they will hope, obviously, that Rashica can do that if he gets a decent run in the team. Um, Scholes as well, when he comes in, that's that's what you want for the new recruits. You want them to bring the whole team up to a higher level rather than the team to bring them down to perhaps um, their level. And Norman has definitely injected a, a much needed dose of quality in, in that midfield. They look a far better side with him in it. They look much more solid in central areas with him in it. Um, the midfield functions a lot better with him in it. And, and and as you said there, it's it's not just the defensive side of things as well. He's, he, he's very good technically. Um, there are a couple of switches to play. There's one ball in particular to Max Aarons, which was, which was terrific. He gets Norwich on the attack as well. He's forward thinking. He isn't, he isn't really a, a tackler and then give it to someone else. So, 
Yeah, so far so good. And, and this is someone as well who it feels like he's got more to give, isn't fully up to their full speed yet. And I think that's probably the most exciting thing. I was looking at a few of his kind of numbers this morning and obviously you've got the shots from range, um, the, the quality on the ball, uh, the, the defensive side of things, it, it just looks very astute. And um, if there's if there's one thing I'm sure Norwich fans are, are hoping that survival will bring, it's that that move gets made permanent already because he already looks an upgrade on, on probably any midfield option that they've got at the moment. And it does feel like now key to their progression as a team and, and, and performances and, and growing that, that shape we've got at the moment is going to be on on, on Norman and, and probably Kabak as well. I'd, I'd throw that in there. So if they can get a tune out of those two and if Norman can continue to impress. And yesterday, actually, I was sat at um, Goodison Park last week and he came off and I heard a couple of, um, I, I don't know who they, were, who they were with, but a couple of the local Everton guys um, Saying, oh, I, I wouldn't mind him. I wouldn't mind him at Everton. And I heard the same yesterday at Turf Moor. A couple of um, a couple of the media there saying, if he was in Burnley's side, you'd um, you'd probably be really impressed with him. So that is um, kind of the the biggest praise that you can give him. Um, and yeah, he's, he's been he's been really impressive, and he, he's probably been exactly what Norwich City needed in midfield. I think we we probably all agree. Um, and yeah, it's just about consistency now, but. If he continues in this vein, the Norwich have, have unearthed quite a gem, I think, from a place where very few teams would, would look ordinarily. Yeah, if there's one player during this international break that we get wind of an injury for that we really, really don't want to hear, it's Norman, isn't it? He'd be the one that fans would just be like, oh, come on, <laughs> this just isn't on. But yeah, the midfield mix more broadly, Pad. You've got Billy Gilmore obviously sat on the bench. Lucas Rupp comes on with not the most impressive of cameos late, late on, you know, fresh legs, but that was about it really. He made a couple of mistakes. Um, Lisa Malou, he's he's doing some good things, but also his passing's letting him down at times, isn't it? And there were times in the game yesterday where both McLean and Lisa Malou almost um, stepped away from the ball and le- left Norman to it because they were like, well, he's the man who's got the pass. And it was almost like they were enabling him so how do you see that midfield mix developing do you think if they're gonna score goals that that maybe Gilmore's passing is going to be needed to come back into things it's an interesting yeah it is an interesting dilemma um on many areas for Billy Gilmore principally because he's not come to to Norwich to as you, as you rightly said run about in the rain after the final whistle not having kicked the ball that's not that wasn't in the plan for him I'm no. sure or either either Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea so yeah, that that's part of the equation. Um, and with Lee Smalou, I, I just don't think defensively he's he's going to be the one who, in the current system where it is that focus, particularly is is to be defensively robust. There was was a phase I thought Norwich started brightly and were offering a counter attacking threat, but then probably the second part of the first half, it was pretty much Burnley pressing Norwich back, increasingly pinning them back. And they were getting a lot of joy in central midfield areas. And, and it didn't feel to me defensively, Lise Malou, Norman and, and McLean were all quite on the same wavelength. But I think of the three, McLean and Norman do have that more defensive resolution to them. You saw in the second half, actually, when Burnley went increasingly longer, increasingly direct. And then what they were trying to do is get knockdowns just in front of Norwich's 18-yard line. And the amount of time Norman was in that area and it almost sensed that that's where the balls were going to drop and... and was able then to, you know, add added ballast to the defensive effort. You don't necessarily see that with Elise Malou. I don't think that's his game fundamentally. He is talking about Mario Vrancic earlier on. I would cast him in that mould. He's he's a bit lightweight without the ball. He can he can put his foot in, but it's just not his natural game. But on the evidence of what we've seen so far in a Norwich shirt, 
So in a in a midfield three that's being asked to maybe be more focused defensively, I think he does stand out a little bit in the current climate. Um, so how you move forward from that? Well, yeah, I don't think Rupp is is the answer, um, but it could be Gilmore in, Lisa Malou out. I think McLean, if he cuts out those basic individual individual errors, then he will play. He will play because Farker is such a fan of him. He does add that added physicality. He is just in terms of his physique. Uh, probably a, better able to cope with what's required in terms of that dimension of the central midfield craft. So as long as we don't get any more of this very sloppy heads gone moments that leading to to concessions, I see him retaining his place. Norman is is a shoe in if he's fit, he plays absolutely. So if you're going to retain the three, it's there's one place open I think, and Lee Malou currently has the shirt. But if Norwich were able to moving forward, feel they had that defensive solidity behind, then I think he would he would gravitate Farker back towards Gilmore for the simple reason you touched on it, his passing range. If you've got Aarons and you've got your newlist fl- flying down the flanks and you've got a guy who can find them with, with quality deliveries and progressive diagonal balls, and we, as we've seen with Norman, then then I think that, that does, going back to what the earlier debate was about, can Norwich now add a bit more productivity at the top end of the pitch? Gilmore dropped into that equation is possibly one of the elements that lead you to be a bit more dangerous going forward because he is he's many things and we've seen it already. He's not a defensively minded midfielder, but with the right protection around him, he's certainly on the ball. He could he could give Norwich a measure of control, um, get the tempo right, and bring others into play because he has that quality on the ball. We've seen it. So yeah, really interesting one for now. It, it feels like Lee Smalou is obviously the more conservative choice out of him and Gilmore, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if we move forward and they remain defensively sound uh, as a unit that we maybe see Lee Smalou dip out because I I just think overall maybe Gilmore's the better midfield option. But again, like with defensive areas, like with the discussion at top end of the pitch, there's so many moving parts to that midfield three. And we've not even touched on, you know, players like Jakob Sorensen, have we? So yeah. um, for now, yeah... I'd have I've I've reservations about Lee Malou without the ball, but but certainly on the ball he has that quality. There was some lovely first time passes dropped over the top for Pookie yesterday. Um, he he was getting himself in shooting positions. He had one or two shots, one decent one, one very wild lash on his right foot. So there's a lot to lot to like about his game, but I just think for me the three central defenders. Yep, you can see that now. That's almost inked in if they continue to maintain those levels. The two wing-backs, yeah, I can see that. And I can even see Sargent and Pookie for the foreseeable. But I still think there's a debate to be had around the central mid- midfield three, um, excluding Norman, who's who's, who's obviously a, a shoe-in. Probably first name on the team, Sheena. Yeah, I think there's quite a few people who feel Sorensen's being a little bit hard done by at the moment and that he's not involved at all. And that maybe he offers as much as Rupp and is a bit more of a of a player for the future that they gave a long-term contract to. You know, we know that he can handle the physical side of things. He's decent in the air and he's very tidy on the ball. And just wonder whether he he maybe will feel that himself as well. But I think Lisa Lou is a good example of perhaps across the whole team, hopefully across the whole team, is that there's more to come still from a lot of these players. You know, Kabak, we saw that brilliant Maradona-like surge into the Burnley half and he eventually was chopped down by Jay Rodriguez. And with his defensive side of things, he's finding his rhythm. But there's more to come from that lad as well. And um, I think if Norwich is to succeed, then probably Lise Malou is the one that they need to find more rhythm and to, to really hit the levels that um, have seen him be, be successful in in France. Just finally then, 
Connor, I, I, just to talk about the strikers a bit, really, I, I felt equally, and as I sort of said with Sorensen there, that Adam Eder was unfortunate to be brought on in the 90th minute because I didn't think Josh Sargent had a great game, if I'm if I'm perfectly honest. It, again, him and Pookie put themselves about. They're working hard. But I, I think I might have even said this in the pod last week as well. The ball isn't sticking up front. You haven't got somebody who is in that, you know, Grant Holt, traditional centre-forward mould, who's protecting that ball and allowing the midfield to catch up with them and give them options. Sargent is is game for the fight, but he's not making the ball stick. Do you, do you think Ida at least deserved more time off the bench yesterday? And and do you see him potentially coming in against Brighton? Um, yes to the first question. I think he, he probably can, although I think I can probably understand it from Daniel Farker's perspective as well, because there was a moment in the second half where it became quite noticeable that the decision would be to try and win the game or to make sure they didn't lose it. And mm. I think quite rightly, given everything that we've discussed around the statistics and the start of the season, Daniel Farker opted to to, to not lose it. Uh, and I think that was probably the correct decision last week at Everton. He, he, he tried to get them back in the game and, and obviously it backfired. Um, because when, you, when you're in games like that, if you can't win them, then just make sure you don't lose them. And, mm. um, and that's what Norwich did yesterday. So... Yeah, I can understand it, but but I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't think Josh Sargent had his best game, but what he does off you is relentless running, high-pressing, energy, effort. Um, and I think probably they're, they're the two at the moment for me. I mean, we've, we've kind of spoke about the back three and the midfield three. And as Pad says, there's there's probably reasons for, for different people coming in, particularly in, in midfield. But that's probably the bit of it at the moment that doesn't quite feel right. The, the top two, uh, Sergeant and Pookie, don't really look like on, on, on the same wavelength yet. We saw a glimpse of what that could be against Watford when Sergeant was was kind of playing off the right and he, he drifted in. But since then, it's it's looked quite difficult. They look quite isolated at times. And, and this is kind of where the balance needs to be struck, I guess. It's not, it's not entirely their fault, although Pookie probably had more service yesterday and was let down by his his first touch on, on, on a few occasions. I, I don't think that means Adam Eder comes in against Brighton, to, to be honest, because um, certainly from that Liverpool offering, which is the last time we saw him, he didn't do anything to to really suggest that that should be the case. What he needs now is is a really good cameo off the bench. And until that happens, uh, and, and look, in his defence, he needs to be given more minutes as well for that to happen. But until he scores a goal off the bench that decides a game or, or rescues a game or has a really good cameo, then at the moment, I think it's quite difficult for him to stake his his claim based off what we've seen so far this season from him. So uh, that's that's difficult. I think what I could see more of is is what we saw um, with Rashica. I think we could see Rashica come into that too quite feasibly because I think he, he would offer Norwich with something a little bit different um, from, from an attacking perspective. He's probably want, willing to get more involved in deeper sort of phases of play than Timo Pukki is and equally has the same threat in behind. Not that I think Norwich are going to drop Timo Pukki and, and put Rashica in there anytime soon. Absolutely not. But I think if you look at it and if, uh, as we said, that for now they're going to persist with this formation, I think we'll, we'll probably see more of Rashica off the bench than we will Adam Eder coming into those front two positions. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's quite a tireless task at the moment because like you say, as, as, as much praise as we've given Sargent, he's not really looked like scoring a goal yet. And um, that is is probably a little bit of a concern. And and it still does feel like the onus really is on Timo Pukki to score or Norwich City really struggles. So that, they're going to have to find a remedy for that inevitably. I don't think it's certainly for now Adam either. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean the answer is Josh Sargent and, and, and Timo Pukki either. So 
yeah, I'm not not quite sure what the solution is and and how they go about it. It might be that they that they drop one of those strikers and look to put in a Todd Campwell, for example, and maybe go for 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 a one in front of the three and then just a sole striker up front and whether that provides them with a bit more creativity. So, I mean, the the one thing Daniel Farker has got is is options. So so that's a positive. We're not speaking about him having to maybe rotate Josip Dermic or Denis Shrebeni in with, with all due respect to those players. So. Um, I think they're in a nicer position, but it's something that, uh, again, as we've spoken about throughout this pod, that they need to find a solution to. And uh, and pretty quickly, if they're to get Premier League um, wins on the board, uh, let alone Premier League points. Yeah, I think an interesting element to that battle between Sargent and Ida, as well as that Ida is going away with Ireland. I just had a quick check. They've got a qualifier in Azerbaijan, but their World Cup qualification hopes are over already, aren't they? So you can almost guarantee that Ireland will play with no pressure on their shoulders and with an eye on the future and probably go and win that one because he still hasn't got his first goal for Ireland, does he? And then they've got a home friendly against Qatar. So if he can't get his first goal in one of those two, then he, he's going to be getting a bit down on himself, I would have thought. And that seems like an ideal opportunity. Amabamadeli also still in, in the squad. They're going to start building for the future because they basically don't have a, a proper competitive game for a couple of years now. Whereas Sargent's been left out of the USA squad, hasn't he? They've gone with sort of a, a home-based unit. Uh, Pulisic and Rayner, the the two sort of star men, are both injured. So they're, they're keeping the, the, the squad tight. And I'm sure Daniel will be pleased to have a, a couple of weeks to really work with Sargent on what he wants. But from both him and Ida, we need to see some signs of quality there. If they're going to be able to be the, the perfect foil for Pukki and actually create openings, a bit like Sargent showed hints of doing against Watford, then, um, yeah, they both need to step up another level because I don't think either of them are doing enough to help Norwich win Premier League points at the moment. But um, I think that'll do for today. Thank you, boys, very much for, for your views. Thank you very much for listening. Um, we've hopefully got some interesting stories lined up during the international break. And, of course, we uh, will keep you up to date with everything that's going on around Europe um, in terms of the, the World Cup qualifiers and where the Norwich players uh, I think there's 12 players who are called up. So um, there will be various bits and pieces to uh, to keep an eye on. But for now, thank you very much for listening. We've got a couple of weeks to wait until that Brighton home game, which already feels like a, a really important match. And I'm sure you're all looking forward to getting back to Carroll Road and trying to roar on the players like the away fans did yesterday because they definitely deserve a lot of credit. They really stuck with the players and, and, and helped them to grind out a very satisfying nil-nil draw at Burnley. Thanks for listening.